Welcome back, everyone, to Beginning at Moses. We left off last time with the touching story of Ruth to prepare us for what begins as an equally touching story as we start the first book of Samuel. Now, even if we're not going to do an exhaustive commentary on all the books that follow, uh, we do have to have a, a slight review here because it's very easy for those who are not too familiar with the Bible to get confused about the names of these books. So we're starting today with the first book of Samuel, as it's usually known in most Bibles that you open today, so-called because the strongest tradition is that the prophet Samuel, or the judge Samuel, as we may call him one or the other, he was the one who wrote this book or books. That's a strong tradition going back to ancient Judaism. There's no, nothing to contradict it, so we can certainly stick with it. However, as far as the division of all these books that follow it, we need to have a brief review here. So, by origin, there was a book of Samuel. A book, not two. It was one. It was one book of Samuel. Those, what we have now is one and two Samuel were originally just the book of Samuel, followed by the book of Kings. Book of Samuel, the book of Kings. So, those were books belonging to what was called the former prophets. They were part of the section of the Hebrew Bible called the Nevi'im, the, the prophets. And these are the former prophets. We're not at the latter prophets yet. And there's another book or books that covers the same time period. And in most English Bibles today, it's called One and Two Chronicles. Right? One and Two Chronicles. And that's a pretty good translation, so we can stick with that title. But once again, it was originally the book of Chronicles, not divided into two. The most common explanation is that over time, as the book was spread, it was reprinted, and especially once, now getting just a couple centuries before the coming of Christ, the Hebrew scriptures were translated into Greek. It was simply too difficult to keep these long books together as one scroll, and therefore they were divided into two. And eventually, even Judaism, even after Christ, would accept this division. And so even in Hebrew Bibles, you will find this division of Samuel, Kings, Chronicles into two. Now, the book or books of Chronicles, well, that's not part of the books of the prophets in the Hebrew Bible. It comes later. It's part of the Ketuvim. It's actually part of the writings. In fact, it's the last book of the writings. So it's an interesting way to look at Chronicles because Chronicles covers the same time period as Samuel and Kings. So this whole history of the kings of Israel right up until the captivity and then the return from captivity. And so because of the fact that it's written as part of the writings, these wisdom writings of the Hebrew Bible, it actually is a sort of reflection. It's thinking back on, on what happened in Israel's history and hearkening to a future yet to come. Nevertheless, in our Bibles, so following the Greek tradition and the Latin, and then in, in all, almost all English Bibles today, Chronicles simply comes after Kings. And this is recognizing, the, this is in adherence to the name that was later given to it. When the Jews would translate the Hebrew scriptures into Greek, this book or books, Chronicles, had another name. It was called very hard for people to pronounce, but if you have, for instance, your Dewey-Rims Bible, you'll see it follows the Greek and the Latin and calling it 
Paralipomenon. Right? So Paralipomenon, what is the book? So the book of Paralipomenon, which is a Greek word, means the things that were left out or the things that were left to the side. So here's some details that were omitted from the histories of the kings. The history of Samuel and then the first kings and then, and then the whole decline of the kings up until the captivity. Here's some details that were left out. And so it, it seems like it almost is a sort of footnote to the book of Samuel and the book of Kings, which was not the original intent. It's not the original intent. It was, it was a, a harkening back. It was a reflection on all of Israel's history. And we'll look at that now. Nevertheless, the way we're going to use it here and what we're doing, because we're examining the prophecies of Christ, we're trying to see for everything from Moses all the way through all the books of the prophets, all the way down uh, to the coming of our Lord, where is our Lord prefigured? Where is he spoken of in the books of the Old Testament? Therefore, I will read these books of Chronicles alongside Samuel and Kings. We'll use them together because they do talk about the same period of history. So where Chronicles adds something, adds a detail, says something that we don't find in Samuel or Kings, we'll add that in so that they complement each other. That's the best way to serve our purpose, so that's what we're going to do. So we will use it as a sort of commentary. Now, this we're going to find right from the beginning. We're going to use that right away when we examine what seems like a very minor detail. If we go to the very beginning, First Samuel. So we've finished now. We're coming to the close of the period of Judges. Now we've gone down several descendants from the time of Ruth because now the great, and the great descendant of Ruth and Boaz is coming, David the king. So we're just about the year, just a little right, before the year 1000 B.C., just about 1,000 years before the coming of our Lord. And so we're going to have to stop right away because there's a little detail we're going to look at at the very beginning here of 1 Samuel. And it says there was a certain man, it's very hard to pronounce these, these place names here, and there's a certain man of Ramah Tamid Sophim of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, son of Jeroham, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuth, an Ephraimite. And he had two wives. The name of one was Hannah. We'll definitely hang on to that. And the name of the other was Peninnah. And Peninnah had children, and Hannah had no children. Now, one little detail here, because it's going to be important, because we're about to introduce this figure of Samuel. It says that this fellow Elkanah, who's going to be his father, is an Ephraimite. I might think that's something you probably easily pass over it. Say, what, what is, I'm sorry, but just don't see why that detail is important. I would just keep reading to the next verse. Well, it's interesting because in, in a number of Bibles, in, in the English tradition, not only in the Catholic, but also the Protestant tradition, there's very often uh, Bibles will have there, instead of Ephraimite, will have Ephrathite. An Ephrathite, and you say, okay, well, that's not meaning anything to me or ringing a bell or anything. But why, why is there this conflict here? Well, this leaves us wondering already, even if you say an Ephraimite, it's going to leave us wondering about this figure of Samuel and who he is because of everything that he's going to do. He certainly is going to seem to be exercising the role of a priest, Samuel, in what, in what follows. He's going to be in the temple. It's going to, Words, he's going to offer sacrifice. He's going to seem to be, certainly be the high priestly figure over Israel, and what? And yet, we're not. We don't seem to be reading here that um, that he has one very important uh, requisite. What do you have to do to be a priest? This is under the Mosaic law. If you want to be a priest in Israel, what do you have to be? What tribe? 
Okay, wow, we have, we have several people in the audience wearing denim. Come on. <laughs> Levi, yeah, right? Come on, you have to be Levi. Right? You have to be a Levite. You have to be a Levite to be, to be a priest. So it sure doesn't sound like he's going to be a Levite. If he's an Ephraimite, what's Ephraim? Ephraim is the breakoff tribe of Benjamin. Ephraim was the favorite son of Benjamin. And so it's like an extra tribe. But he's really from origin, from Benjamin, an extra tribe. Ephraim, just like Manassas. But definitely not Levi. So it seems like there's going to be a problem here. Now, it doesn't clear it up either. If you follow the alternate tradition, which may be possible that there can be some confusion with this word that's used in Hebrew here, that sometimes it can be, it's very close to another word that does refer to someone who's an Ephrathite, which means what? If you're an Ephrathite, means what? It means you're from Ephrata. Well, that's some other place, isn't it? I'm not too familiar to it, but might know. It's, a, it's another word for Bethlehem. Oh, so he's from Bethlehem? He's an Ephrathite? Okay. So he's from Bethlehem. Well, all right. But does that help us? Because that wouldn't make him a Levite either, necessarily. For certain, uh, certainly your hometown's not going to give you away there as a, as a Levite. What would that make you if you were an Ephrathite? That's what we're going to hear about David later. We're going to, they find him, they say he's an Ephrathite. And the word is so close in the Hebrew that it, you know, there's, some, there's some mystery left there and some confusion for Samuel. Well, which one is it? Is he an Ephraimite or an Ephrathite? But if he's an Ephrathite, then he's not the tribe of Levi. He'd be the tribe of Bethlehem is nicely squared in the territory of Judah. So he'd be the tribe of Judah. Hmm. Well, now, you might say, okay, we can clear this up. Well, let's turn to our great commentary, right? If we go to First Chronicles, well, we can look there, and maybe it'll clear it up for us. Well, it looks hopeful. In chapter 6, we read about the sons of Levi. Chronicles has this really epic beginning in that, what does Chronicles do? It's going to be a parallel here. We're going to link up right away. What is Chronicles starts with Adam. It says, let's start all the genealogies. I'm just going to start over, the chronicler says, and I'm going to start with Adam all the way down. I'm going to go down for every possible generation. So it's the first several chapters of Chronicles is just going to be genealogy going down from Adam. Hmm. Do we ever get genealogies like that in the New Testament? Hmm. Well, a couple times. All right. So Matthew, in his gospel, he'll start by giving us the genealogies of everything down from Abraham, from Abraham all the way to Christ. So Abraham through David to Christ. And that's going to have a real parallel with what we're talking about. But then there's another genealogy, isn't there, in the, in the New Testament. So Luke will do more like this. He'll do the chronicler. He'll say, I'm going to trace from Christ... I'll chase from Christ all the way back to Adam. Why, why is that important? So Luke's, Luke has in mind the same thing that the Chronicler does, which is that I want all of salvation history. God actually is acting on the whole human race, not just the Hebrew people. That's the vision here of the Chronicler, and that's why he starts with Adam and goes all the way down. And when we read in chapter 6 about Levi, oh, well, okay, it seems to place Samuel here. We, have, we find an Elkanah and then a Samuel. 
and then the sons of Samuel. So it seems like, okay, well, that clears it up. Hmm, I guess he's a Levite. I guess, right? It seems to settle it, because he clearly says he's in the tribe of Levi, so I guess he was a Levite. Well, that would be possible. It's not in conflict with what we read in 1 Samuel. It just means that, well, he was, by blood, he was a Levite, but he, he was either of Ephraim, that he was dwelling in that land of Ephraim, which is quite possible, or in the land of Judah, in the land of Ephrata. Quite Either one is possible, and those things aren't in conflict. But it is awfully mysterious. Why do I, why do I point this out? Because the figure of Samuel is going to be such an important type of Christ, such an important prefiguration of Christ. And do we find a similar mystery about the genealogy of Christ? Well, there is a bit of a mystery there, because... So Matthew's genealogy down to Christ starts with Abraham. It goes through the tribe of Judah. It goes down. There is, there is one mystery there. We won't dwell on it too long because we haven't encountered this figure yet. But he mentions a Zadok in there, which is often identified with Zadok the priest, which would be a Levite, but still somehow getting into our Lord's line. And he goes down. Well, we're not sure. Still, our Lord seems clearly through Joseph to be of the line of Judah, which is in fulfillment of all the prophecies. So there he is, but... What do we read about at the beginning of Luke's gospel? Beginning of Luke's gospel, what do we hear about first? We hear about this priest, Zechariah, right? He's going to be the father of John the Baptist, right? Well, he's ministering in the temple. He's a priest, right? <clears throat> he's a priest. He's ministering in the temple, and... He marries a woman named Elizabeth, right? right? He marries a woman, Elizabeth, who we're, we're told is a daughter. You know, she's of the daughters of Aaron. Right? So no question, that whole line there is definitely Levi, which makes you wonder. It's like, well, wait a minute. Isn't, isn't Elizabeth Mary's cousin? Right? So that's a bit of a mystery, too. So it seems like she's Mary's cousin. So what leaves us wondering, is Mary a Levite, the mother of Christ? Is she a Levite? Because her cousin is. We're not too sure about that. Now, we can't quite clear that up in Luke, unless we, one way to clear it up is to say, well, actually, Luke, the way he traces the genealogy of our Lord all the way back to Adam, there are different names from what is in Matthew's. And a very traditional way of explaining that is to say, well, Luke is all about Mary. Everything in the beginning, he's, everything is the words of Mary. Everything that happens in the early life of our Lord recounted by Mary. Right? And so Luke, in fact, is tracing the genealogy of our Lord from Mary all the way back to Adam, whereas we know that Matthew traces the genealogy from Abraham down to Joseph. He's very clear about that. So what does that mean? We still don't know. It's, it, it's not quite sure. It's mysterious. Our Lady could be a Levite, or she could be of the tribe of Judah, like Joseph. And then our Lord truly is, even by blood, not only by foster father, but even by blood, he is truly of the tribe of Judah. Nevertheless, somehow the tribe of Levi gets in there because if her cousin is Elizabeth, well, she's at least, there's at least by marriage, so there is a very close relation there. Why is it important? Because so Samuel, it's never quite clear that he's acting as a Levite, that he is a Levite, huh? but he's going to certainly act like a priest, right? Whereas with our Lord too, our Lord is he clearly a Levite? No, it's not even a promise. It's not a fulfillment of, of any prophecy that he's a Levite. And so, um, well, what does that mean? 
he's still going to act like a priest. In fact, he will be the one true high priest. So this mystery of the genealogy is something that is part of this whole prefiguration that's going to come of Samuel. And this is going to become far more explicit now, because what do we find now? Who is the wife of this Elkanah? So he has two wives, right? So one has children, and then it has children, but Hannah has no children. So she's barren. She's barren. Hannah is, what? That's just another way of spelling Hannah is Anna. Right? It's the same name, Anna, Hannah. And what does that name mean? It means grace. It means grace. So this Anna or Hannah will pray to the Lord and pray again and again. <clears throat> she'll go to Eli, who is the high priest. She'll go to Eli and she'll pray to him. She'll beg him that she may have a son. And he tells her, Go in peace, the God of Israel will grant your petition, which you have made to him. And sure she prays and prays, and then she does conceive. Right? She does conceive. And so because she conceives, because she conceives a son then, in chapter 2, she will sing a great song of praise. A great song of praise, which when you hear it, it's, we use it in the divine office in the church. It's on, we use that at Lauds. On, on, so we do have it at Lauds, and sometimes it's, and it's very perfectly echoed in the New Testament by the Magnificat of Our Lady. So in Luke, the words are very similar, which should say, Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My strength is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord. There is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. No more so very proudly, talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge. By him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken. The feeble gird on strength. Those who are full have hired themselves out for bread. But those who are hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to hell and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low, he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the dung heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the, Lord, of the earth are the Lord's and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them will he thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the power of his anointed. We'll get back to that very important ending word in a moment. There are themes then in this, in this prayer of Anna or Hannah, which is so perfectly mirrored in the Magnificat of, of Mary in, in the Gospel of St. Luke. These reversals, right? these reversals of, of fortune, which we will see. The, the first one, obviously, is the fact that the other wife of Elkanah, who used to <clears throat> deride Anna, make fun of her for the fact she didn't have children, now she has to take the back seat to, to Hannah, who's going to, be, who's going to be the one who has the favorite child. So What's going to come, though, too, is we're seeing there's going to be another reversal of fortune, is that this priest Eli, 
is going to have to give way to this new priest who's coming, Samuel. And the final reversal, fortunately, we're going to see is that, which ties in with this word anointed at the end, is that there's going to be a first king, but then he's going to have to give way to another one, a lowly one who comes out of nowhere, that is David. And so that's the most important use of this word that we find at the end, anointed, right? Anointed, which is what? Anointed, which is the word Messiah, right? So translated by Christ in the New Testament, anointed one, Christos, the Messiah. So who is this Messiah? Well, we've already seen this in, in the past, that this word anointed is going to be applied to priests, prophets, and now most especially to kings. Now most especially to kings. The first time, because this is going to come up again now, the first time we saw this word, does anybody remember the first time we, when did we, first time we see this word being used in the Old Testament? It's when Jacob, right? Jacob, he takes his sleep there, right? On a stone. And afterwards he anoints the stone, right? He anoints the stone, right? So he takes his sleep there on the stone and he anoints the stone. The first time we find the use of this word anointed I said because this word anointed follows us, but as we see this word, the word for the word stone is going to follow us too. It's going to keep following us, even through the story we're going to talk about today. <clears throat> so now, this Samuel, what will Hannah do? Very selflessly now, what will she do with her son? She will dedicate him. She'll have him go live in the temple, right? She's going to have him go live in the temple, just like another Anna will do one day with her child. So Samuel then goes, and then we are told that Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy girded with a linen ephod. And his mother used to make for him a little robe and take it to him each year when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, The Lord give you children by this woman for the loan which she lent to the Lord. So then they would return to their home. And the Lord visited Hannah, and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. And the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. And we, keep, we're, we continue to be told this, right? So Eli already were told that his sons are very, being very wicked in Israel and causing terrible scandal. So his time is soon to come to an end. But we're told that the boy Samuel continued to grow both in stature and favor with the Lord and with men. Right? So precisely the same words we'll hear later for John the Baptist, first of all, and then especially for our Lord Jesus Christ. We then have in chapter 3, then, the calling of Samuel. So one of the most famous chapters in the book, which you've heard before, perhaps, at least part of it. This is uh, what happens. Samuel is ministering to the Lord under Eli, and the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. Well, that's about to change. He goes, what happens? At that time, Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see, was lying down in his own place. The lamp of God had not yet gone out. And Samuel was lying down within the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. Then the Lord called Samuel, Samuel, and he said, Here I am. And ran to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call. Lie down again. So he went and lay down. And the Lord called again, Samuel. And Samuel arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. 
But he said, I did not call my son, lie down again. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, and the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. And the Lord called Samuel again the third time, and he rose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. Then Eli perceived that the Lord was calling the boy. Therefore Eli said to Samuel, Go lie down, and if he calls you, you shall say, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. So Samuel went and lay down in his place, and the Lord came and stood forth, calling as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, Speak, for your servant hears. Then the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I am about to do a thing in Israel, at which the two ears of every one that hears it will tingle. On that day I will fulfill against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. Tell him I am about to punish his house forever for the iniquity which he knew, because his sons were blaspheming God. And he did not restrain them. Therefore I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be expiated by sacrifice or offering forever. Samuel lay down until the morning, and then he opened the doors of the house of the Lord. And Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli. But Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son, and he said, Here I am. And Eli said, What was it that he told you? Do not hide it from me. May God do so, so to you and more also, if you hide anything from me of all that he told you. So Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. And Eli doesn't even hesitate. He says, It is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. So Eli himself will have a good end, even if his sons have caused terrible scandal in Israel. So we have this whole beginning here, right, which is very similar to what? It's similar to the Gospel of St. Luke right now so far, right? We have genealogy. We have Hannah, who sings a song, just as Mary will. Very similar. A barren woman, just like Elizabeth. And what are we going to have now? Now, we're going to switch to another character, even though it doesn't seem like it's a person. All the characters in Samuel and Kings are developed so vividly, developed so vividly that it's one of the most striking features of the book, that we find that there's this constant going back and forth, like a perfectly crafted novel, and just this interchange of different characters and their personal histories. So well developed. And now there's another theme that's going to go on here. The theme of the ark. Does everyone remember the ark? Right? The ark of God, the ark of the covenant. Right? This has been going on ever since the Hebrews left Egypt. And remember, the ark has never had a permanent resting place up until now. So the ark now is going to come back into the story in a big way. So we're told that Samuel grew, now getting to chapter 4, Samuel grew and the Lord was with him and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel from Dan to Beersheba knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now you remember about that, Shiloh is where it's been resting, right? Now, what's going to happen here? The Hebrews, all of Israel, they're going to go, out to go to battle against their arch enemy. From now on, the biggest, biggest enemy of the Israelites, there are still many, Ezra, many enemies in the land, but the biggest one of all is the Philistines. All right, the Philistines. We know that 
because it goes right down to our modern day. After all, the very word Philistine comes down into our time as the word Palestine. Right? So Palestinians of today, ancient, very distant descendants of the Philistines. So even, even in our day. And so what's going to happen is the Philistines are going to go to war with the Israelites, and the Israelites are going to take out the ark. They say, let's take it into battle, and we'll go fight with the ark. We'll bring it right out and fight, okay? So they take it out. Remember, what's inside the ark? Does anybody remember? The tablets, tablets of the law, the Ten Commandments, the golden jar that contains the manna, and the rod of Aaron, which budded. And so they go out against the Philistines. Now Eli will die, and he'll be replaced now by Samuel judging Israel. Now they go out to battle against the Philistines, and they lose. And the Philistines will capture the ark. So the ark now will be taken away. We're taken away amongst the Philistines. And what will happen now when they take the Ark? The Ark of the Covenant will now go into this land of the Philistines. And it won't go well for the Philistines at all. What's going to happen? They're going to be assaulted by plagues for having taken the Ark with them. And it's a perfect repetition of the plagues that assailed another country, right? So Egypt. So the country of the Philistines... It's going to be, there's going to be a parallel with Egypt. It's going to be a sort of new Egypt. Why is that important? Why is that important, this new Egypt? Because of what? There's an ark going down into it. Similar to, is there going to be any other person or thing, a person especially, who's going to fly into Egypt one day? It's similar. What happens? When our Lord is born... He has to fly into Egypt with the Ark of the New Covenant, right? So his mother will take him down into Egypt. And what's going to happen down there? He goes there until those who seek his life are gone. And it's similar now because now this Ark is going to go down to, into this Egypt of the Philistines. Just as our Lord will go down into a pagan nation like his forefathers before returning what happens now? You go, the Philistines captured the Ark of God and carried it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. And then the Philistines took the Ark of God and brought it down to the house of Dagon. That's their god, Dagon. They set it up beside Dagon. They say, here you go. Let's put him right here. Put him right next to ours. Good night. And they shut the door. And then when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the Ark of the Lord. Keep that in mind, okay? This is their God doing this, okay? Their God fell face down. Just keep that in mind because there's somebody else who's among the Philistines who's going to fall face down a little bit later, right? So he fell face downward, Dagon did, before the Ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. And they said, don't do that again. So <laughs> they put him back in his place, but they rose early the next morning. Behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the Ark of the Lord. And now the head of Dagon... And both his hands were lying cut off upon the threshold so that only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. 
This is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon and Ashdod to this day. And the Lord was heavy, the Lord's, the hand of the Lord was heavy upon the people of Ashdod, and he continued to afflict them with plagues, he took with tumors. And now, after a total of seven months now, finally the Philistines will return the ark to the Israelites. They so we're done, we don't want this ark anymore. It's destroying all of us. We're afraid of it. And so now the ark will go back into the land of Israel. So after this brief sojourn in this sort of Egypt, and this Philistine, now the ark of the covenant will go back. Not yet, though, to its resting place. It will go to this place called Kiriath-Jerim, which is west of Jerusalem. It's not going into Jerusalem yet. Remember, why is it not going into Jerusalem? There's not a Jerusalem to speak of yet. It's not even under the control of the Hebrews yet. It's still a pagan city at this point. So it's still called Jebus. It's under the control of the Jebusites. It's not under the control of the Israelites. Like, yeah. So west of there, though, the ark is going to come to its temporary resting place. Very good. So far, so good. There's a lot to cover just in 1 Samuel. Samuel now is the judge of Israel. He's going to be the last judge. Last of the era of the judges. And it won't last too long. What will he do? Now, he's judge of Israel. And now in chapter 7, after the return of the ark, Samuel will do this. In commemoration of this, what will he do? He'll do what I love to hear about. What does he do? He says, Samuel took a stone. He took a stone and set it up between Mitzpah and Jeshana and called its name Ebenezer and said, Merry Christmas, Mr. Scrooge. No. And they took his, he said, called his name Ebenezer because what does Ebenezer mean? It means the stone of help, right? The stone of help or the rock of help, the rock of salvation, right? And that's what he calls the stone. It says, Hitherto the Lord has helped us. So in thanksgiving for the return of the ark. So the Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. Things are going well there, right? Things are going well. But Samuel has a couple sons, and, and they're not popular at all. They're not popular at all in Israel. And people get tired of this judgeship under Samuel. And so what do they do now? They ask for a king. Israel asks for a king. I've already alluded to this in past episodes. So in chapter 8, Israel is going to ask for a king. And they say, we don't want this anymore. Because your sons are bad. You're just, they're being bad just like the sons of Eli. They take bribes. They pervert justice. So, so this is not, your sons do not walk, they said. They do not walk in your ways. So appoint for us a king to govern us like all the nations. This thing displeased Samuel. And he said to the Lord, and the Lord said, No, listen to the voice of the people and all that they say to you. They have not rejected you. They have rejected me from being king over them. They rejected me from being king over them. So they rejected God as king. That was the plan from Moses onward. The plan was for God to be king of the people. According to all the deeds, the Lord said, which they have done to me from the day I brought them out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so also they do to you. Now then listen to their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. And so Samuel told all these words of the Lord to the people asking a king. He said, 
These will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. He will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his, his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards, give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your men servants and maid servants, the best of your cattle and your donkeys, and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks, and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. So he warns them, right? He warns them how bad it's going to be. It's going to be conscription. There's going to be a 10% income tax. Can you imagine? Remember, this was long before the days of an enlightened democratic republic, when, of course, the government would never tax us for 10% of our income. Well, that was a big deal back then. So 10% income tax. Right? So the 10% flat tax. All right, and you shall be his slaves. Right? This is what your king is going to do. He's going to get you into wars. It's not going to be happy. You're not going to be happy under a king, but they, they won't listen. They said, no, we want to be like everybody else. We want to make all the other nations give us a king. And so the Lord said, listen to their voice and make them a king. And so then Samuel said to the men of Israel, go every man to his city. So I said, everybody go home. Get back to you about the king. And so he does. Remember what I told you about this. The the Lord says, go along with it. Go along with it, right? Why? Because the Lord's going to have the last laugh. He's going to say, my plan is I'm supposed to be king. The Lord is supposed to be king, right? But you want a man as a king. Well, I'm going to win because we're going to have God and man be king. There's a king coming. It's going to be God and man. But for now, no, we're going to choose a king now. So we're going to choose a king and At first, we're going to be wondering about this. We're going to say, how's this going to play out? Because this seems to go against the prophecies that we've heard so far. Because he's going to find a king, and his name's going to be Saul. It's a very appropriate name, because it seems that the name Saul just means asked for. So, you asked for a king? Here's your king. His name's asked for. So, they find a king then. Who's this king, though, in chapter 9? Saul. So, there was a man... Of Benjamin. So now a tribe of Benjamin. Okay. So a man of Benjamin, his name was Kish, son of Abiel, son of Zeror, son of Becherah, son of Bethia, son of Benjaminite. A man of wealth, and he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the sons of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. So a tall, handsome young man named Saul. But the problem with Saul is it's not going along with the plan. It's a tribe of what? Benjamin, well, one thing we were sure about, if anybody's going to rule Israel, it can't be from the tribe of Benjamin. It's got to be from the tribe of... What did we hear at the end of Genesis? Jacob's last words to his son. He calls over Judah and he says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a ruler from his thigh, until he comes to whom it belongs. And to him shall be the obedience of the nations. So a king from the tribe of Judah is promised, but not a king from the tribe of Benjamin. Nevertheless, that's what they get. So they get Saul. 
And so what happens? They find Saul. Saul's out tending to his donkeys when he gets called to be here. And he gets called in, and finally he's found. They find him hiding among a bunch of baggage. And they bring him out, and then finally, okay, he finds him. Now we're getting down to anointing the king. So in chapter 10, we'll have the first anointing of a king. So Samuel, we're told then, he finds this Saul and he says, he took a vial of oil and poured it on his hand and kissed him and said, has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people Israel? You shall reign over the people of the Lord and you shall save them from the hand of their enemies round about. And this shall be the sign to you that the Lord has anointed you to be prince over his heritage. When you depart from me today, you will meet two men by Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin at Zelzah. And they will say to you, the donkeys which you went to seek are found. And now your father has ceased to care about the donkeys and is anxious about you, saying, What shall I do about my son? <clears throat> so he finds him now. Move on a little bit, but he anoints him. And now Saul is proclaimed king. Samuel presents him to the people. He calls together all the people now at the close of chapter 10 and presents to them their king. And everyone's very happy to have a king. Samuel told all the people the rights and duties of kingship, and he wrote them in a book and laid it before the Lord. Then Samuel sent all the people away to his home. Saul also went to his home at Gibeah, and went, and with him went men of valor whose hearts God had touched. But some worthless fellows said, How can this man save us? They despised him and brought him no present, but he held his peace. But he held his peace. So some people are doubtful. But things start to go well at the beginning. Saul's a big fighter. He seems to be leading Israel out very well in front of all its enemies. Everything's going well at first, and it seems that Samuel is now ready to step away. Well, you have your king. I'm going to fade into the background. Except that's not what's going to happen. Now, Saul, everything's going to start going wrong, and so Samuel won't fade into the background. He's sort of going to be there all the time, cracking the whip on the king. So, he is the spiritual leader of Israel will be there taking Saul to task for everything he's doing wrong. So in chapter 13, here's the first big thing he does wrong. He's doing great in battle, but he offers sacrifice without Samuel, even though Samuel says, wait till I get there after the battle and I will offer the sacrifice. But he gets tired and says, I don't think he's going to come. So he goes ahead and offers sacrifice without Samuel And so he said, well, that's it. You did that. Now your line is not going to be the line of the king. You've been king up till now, but your line is not going to be the one that's going to inherit the kingship. So he's very upset about that. Things go even worse now for Saul because he makes a very rash oath that in chapter 14 that he doesn't want anyone to eat any food until they're done fighting their enemies. And his son Jonathan is going to become very important as a friend of David. Right? Son Jonathan doesn't hear about this order and he goes ahead and eats. And so then Saul finds out Saul wants to kill his son then afterwards because, of course, he disobeyed his command, but the people won't have anything of it because Jonathan is their great hero in battle. 
Now in chapter 15, once again, Saul is going to be disobedient. He's not going to obey what the Lord says to do when he fights the Amalekites. So the Amalekites, you may remember, one of Israel's first enemies, right? As soon as they got out of Israel, as soon as they got out of Egypt, they were attacked by the Amalekites, already on the way to the Promised Land. So they were attacked by the Amalekites. And he, he fights them out, utterly defeats the Amalekites, but instead of destroying everything, he takes things back. He takes spoils back with him in disobedience to the commandment of the Lord. And now Samuel tells him, why did, yeah, he comes and sees him, he says, why did you do this? Uh, Saul's all happy, he said, look, I did what I was told. And Samuel says, that's nonsense, you didn't do what you were told. He said, well, why did you bring all this cattle back with you? He said, well, I was going to sacrifice it. And then Samuel responds in chapter 15, he says, well, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices and as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he also has rejected you from being king. Just like that. So that's it. Now, not only is his line not going to survive as in the kingship, Saul himself is rejected from being king, and he's not going to remain king. And he's told now that there's a new king coming, one whom he's chosen after his own heart, the one who the Lord has chosen after his own heart. And that's what's going to happen now. We're going to have... The anointing of David as king. So, it's important stuff to cover now before we get to the end of this episode. So now in chapter 16, as Saul fades away, the main character of 1 Samuel is going to come on the scene. So David, at long last, the king that we've been waiting for. How will this start now? Very important for what we're looking at prefigurations of Christ. So what do we have here? In chapter 16, the Lord said to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul, seeing that I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. The Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. And invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do, and you shall anoint him. You shall anoint for me him whom I shall name to you. Lord did, Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably. I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. And now he looks for the one whom he's supposed to anoint as king, but doesn't find him. None of them are the appropriate one. And the Lord says, no, do not look on appearance. You may think you know who it is, but don't look on appearance. Another famous verse from from this book. It said, the Lord does not see as man sees. Man looks on the face. The Lord looks on the heart. And they say, are all your sons here? And he says, no, there remains yet the youngest. But behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and fetch him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And Senate brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for it is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. So what happens now? We have an anointing now of who's going to be the new king, David. 
We don't know how old he is now, although later on, the beginning of his reign, we'll be told that the beginning of his reign was when he was 30 years old. He was 30 years old for the beginning of his reign. So we're not sure, is that, is that referring to right now when Samuel anoints him? Perhaps, but it's important, right, this number of 30. So he's 30 years old when he's going to begin now his public life, David. And what's going to happen after he's anointed? Are things going to go great for David? No. In fact, we're going to see things are going to go really rough for him. He's going to be persecuted, in fact. He's going to be persecuted, running from those who are in power. Always slipping away from those who are in power. So very similar to the one who is to come. Now, Things are going really bad for Saul, and he's going to meet David in this way. At the close of chapter 16, we're told the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord tormented him. And Saul's servants said to him, Behold, now an evil spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is skillful in playing the harp or the lyre. And when the evil spirit from God is upon you, he will play and you will be well. So that's what they do, and they find, so guess who's good at that? The same David. He's an excellent harpist. He's a great musician, David. And so they're going to send for David, and he's going to be in Saul's court, and he's going to play. He's going to play the lyre or the harp for him whenever he's in this horrible state, when this evil spirit is assailing him. And that will act as a sort of exorcism, and it will send out the evil spirit, and then he'll be well again. So he'll always be there with him. But then amazingly now, David's going to come from out of nowhere, we wouldn't expect this musician to do this, this young musician, but here he's going to be. We're at war again now in chapter 17 with the Philistines, but now the most famous Philistine of all is going to make it on the scene. Everybody knows who that is, right? Goliath, right? Goliath. So according to some texts, if we look at the Hebrew text that we have now, he's almost 10 feet tall, according to them. According to the older texts we have, like the Greek, and the Latin follows that, he's more like 7 feet tall. But... So at any rate, either way, he's taller than anybody else around. He's big and he's strong. He's been a warrior from his youth. And everybody's scared of him. He's challenging them and he's insulting the Israelites. He's insulting the God of Israel. And he's saying, why don't we just settle this whole thing? Just send your best man, have him come fight me. Whoever wins, that's the end of the battle. That's it. It's over. End of the war. But everyone was afraid to go. Everyone was afraid to go. Except now, David shows up. Why? Because he comes in and says, here, I'm going to fight. No, his father Jesse says, take your brothers some food. He said, take your brothers and Ephah and parched grain and these ten loaves and carry them quickly to the camp to your brothers. And take these ten cheeses to the commander of their thousand and see how your brothers fare and bring some token from them. Well, it doesn't go like that. He comes and he says, how are you letting this happen? Don't you see that Philistines insulting the army of the living God? And he said, what are we going to do? They said, well... Hmm, well, Saul's going to promise a great reward, even his own daughter in marriage, to whoever, anyone who could defeat Goliath. And so David said, minor technical issue there. Maybe it would have been uh, 
photoshopped out afterwards or something, but no, it'll be there forever. That's fine. And so now David says, I'm up for the challenge. I definitely want to do that. I want to defend the honor of God in the armies of Israel, so I'm going to do that. And Saul says, no, you can't do that. You're just a boy. You don't have any experience in battle. And he's a warrior from his youth. He said, no, I want to do it. I'm, I'm ready. I said, well, the Lord go with you. So Saul said, the Lord go with you very well. And so here, here's, here's my armor and some weapons. And David puts them on. And they say, he can barely even move. He said, I don't know how to use this stuff. I'm sorry. I'm not experienced in battle. I can't do it. And so he takes off all the armor. He divests himself of all weaponry, all armor, and just becomes what? Just a simple, vulnerable boy. And then it says, what does he do then? How's he going to do it? So he said, I can't do that. He takes all the armor. And then he took his staff in his hand. And then he went to the brook. So the brook or the torrent is the word in verse 40 of chapter 17. So he went to the brook and he, what does he choose from the brook? Five smooth stones. Now by now you should get excited when you say all these very specific details, right? Why, why is the inspired word giving us such specific details? So he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's bag. And his sling was in his hand and he drew near to the Philistine. So what is that? So he goes and he takes five smooth stones from the brook. What are five? What is that doing? What is this brook about? This brook. Well, we already are excited about stones, right? Stones have been a, a figure here of the Christ, right? Of the anointed one ever since Genesis. Stones. So he's going to take five of them, though, from the torrent. Water. Well, water is very important. It'll be very important later on in the gospel, right? It's water is, of course, for baptism. But our Lord says water also, the water of baptism also is, signifies his passion, too. Right? He says, I have a baptism wherewith I am to be baptized, as he's referring to his crucifixion. And it's the same as in one of the Psalms of David that we're going to read in the not-too-distant future, I hope, when it says that this, the Messiah, in Psalm 109, the Messiah will drink from the torrent, it's the same word, the same word in Hebrew, drink from the torrent in the way. So, referring once again to the fact that he will get down, come down to our level, and he will suffer for us. But he's going to draw now five smooth stones from here. Well, the five smooth stones, the fathers aren't agreed about what that signifies, but the strongest interpretation is that it's a prefiguration of the five wounds of Christ. So it's the five wounds of Christ that are signified by the five stones. But what's most important about the stones, after that we don't hear about the five anymore. All we hear about is one. Only about one stone. What's he going to do? He comes with his staff and his sling, prefiguring the instruments of the passion. Right? So he comes with his staff, signifying the cross, the sling, signifying the instruments of the passion, like the scourging. And, and he goes and he takes that, and what does he take? Only one stone. And, and of course, Goliath mocks him. He says, what are you, am I a little dog? You're coming with me with that? <laughs> he said, come on, come closer now. I'll eat you alive. Right? So, he comes closer, he does, he comes right at him. And remember, the only thing now, he's fully armed. He's all armor, Goliath. The only thing there is his forehead is exposed. So David comes right at him with one stone. Now all the fathers are agreed about this. What's the one stone that he hurls at him? They say it's the stone that the builders rejected. Right? 
The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, as we'll hear later in the Psalms. So the one stone signifies Christ. He sent forth where? He sent forth away, outside, just as it will be cast out of Jerusalem. It's the stone the builders rejected, but he's going to become the cornerstone. How? Because he's going to be planted, right? Just like the cross will be planted on Mount Calvary, right? The place of the skull. So now this stone is going to be planted in the skull of Goliath, right? So the stone gets planted right there, and then what happens? Then Goliath falls just like Dagon on the ground, right? And then what happens? So then he falls like Dagon on the ground, and then David comes over, and what does David do? Very precise about this. What does he do? It says he takes Goliath's sword. He takes Goliath's sword and cuts off his head. What does he do? Goliath, what does he signify then? He's the, he's the skull. He's the Calvary. Right? He's death. He's death that's come through sin. And so what does David do, the precursor of Christ? He kills death by death. He kills death by death. He takes his own sword, the sword of death, the sword of Goliath, and chops off his head. And so David prevails. <clears throat> so David now prevails. What happens now with David? So Saul gets very upset about this because now there's a new song in Israel that everyone starts singing after this. They're so happy because all the Philistines fly away. They're so scared now because this little boy David defeated their champion. And so they sing this new, this new ditty. It says, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. Well, Saul doesn't like this song at all. But everybody, like, everybody likes to sing it now. Now Saul's more angry than ever. He already knows that he's about to lose the kingship. And so he's furious about this. And so he's very angry. And from now on, actually, he's going to try to kill David. So David now is from, out, from here on out, David's just going to be persecuted. Even though Saul, after much hesitation, does keep his promise, he doesn't give his eldest daughter. He gives the next one. He gives the daughter Michael, not like the man's name Michael, but M-I-C-H-A-L or O-L. So Michael. He gives her to marriage to David. So he does keep his promise and do that. Also, David now becomes best friends with Jonathan. And so to move along here, just to continue the theme of what he's doing, he's fleeing from Saul. He's now a persecuted man, David, now that he's in his public ministry, as it were, preparing for his kingship. <clears throat> he's friends with Jonathan. Michael, his new wife, helps him escape from Saul. Saul never forgets that. And later on, he's going to take Michael away and make her marry somebody else just because he's so mad for her that she, that she helped David escape. So he keeps fleeing away from Saul. He goes and finds Samuel in Ramah. And Jonathan continues to help him. And now David, day by day, continues to gain strength and followers as he prepares, even though in no way does he try to go in any way against Saul or rebel against his kingship or hurt him in any way. So David, now, just more episodes, though, during this time of flight and persecution, ways in which he prefigures our Lord. What do we find in chapter 21? In chapter 21, we are told that David came with his fellows now, his 
disciples or his cohorts, right? He goes with them to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest. Nob is just outside of Jerusalem. It's just a little north of Jerusalem. Remember, temple worship, nothing that's taking place yet. There's no temple yet. So the observance of the law and the true worship is taking place outside of Jerusalem. And that's where he goes and he finds Ahimelech the priest. And he says, we need food. And Ahimelech says, well, I don't have any food. The only thing I have is the loaves, the loaves of the presence. Remember those, the bread of the presence? We were told about that when we were studying the Mosaic books, right? So in the sanctuary, there's the bread of the presence, these 12 loaves that are kept all the time. And only the priests are supposed to eat them. But Elimelech says, well, if you really need to eat, you can eat them. As long as you have kept yourselves pure, you can eat the bread of the presence. And so David and his fellow men sit down and they eat the bread of the presence. So it's a sort of last supper that they have here. So they have this sort of last supper before they go on. And what's going to happen? Is David going to get killed? No, he's not going to get killed. Well, he does continue to prefigure in some ways the passion. What happens to do after that? Now he flees. He's trying to still get away from Saul. And so he goes someplace you wouldn't imagine. Why would he go this? He goes into Philistine territory. So maybe he'll be safe there. So he fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. So he's one of the Philistines. And he said, and he said, what are you doing here? You're the Philistine slayer. What are you doing coming into the land of the Philistines. And so David, in order to escape being apprehended and killed by the Philistines, decides to play the madman. And so he'll go, he goes there and he just acts like a crazy man. And he lets all, all the drool go down his face and just walks around like he's crazy and plays the fool. And so Akish lets him get away because so well, he's just a madman. I don't know what he's doing here. But the only thing is that we say, does that really prefigure anything? Well, it does. It does. It, it is followed later on by our Lord, isn't it? Is our Lord made to play the fool during his passion? He is. Maybe by the Roman soldiers and then especially when he's sent to Herod, when he's sent to King Herod, right? He's sent to Herod and Herod makes a fool out of him and wants to play games with him and then just sends it back to Pilate to be crucified. But that, now, is, is David going to be slain now? No, but who is going to be? Well, Saul, he's going to find out what happened there with Ahimelech and how he helped David and all his men. Remember, David's not trying to do anything against Saul. He's not trying to overthrow him, not trying to hurt him in anything. But Saul, in his rage over what happened, he slaughters all of the priests there in retribution for helping David. So Saul is really going downhill fast now. And the only, only one of them will escape. It'd be Athar, who is a son, right? One of the sons. He will go and escape and he'll tell David what happened. And David will be very upset now. You see, I knew on that day when Dag the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul. So somebody there betrayed him and told Saul what happened. So they all found out, and then Saul killed all the priests. <clears throat> now, David will continue to prove how true he is, right? Continue to prove how true he is because of the fact that he will have two opportunities now 
to kill Saul. He's going to apprehend him in the wilderness. He's going to apprehend him in the wilderness at night, and he'll have the chance to get him, and instead he doesn't. Instead what he does, he just cuts off a piece of his garment and then goes away so that the next day he can say to Saul, Hey, here I am, calling from the other side of the valley. Look at this. It's your garment. See, I'm not your enemy. I had the chance to kill you, and I didn't. And that placates him for a little bit, but not for long. So then he goes after him again. But now at this point, Samuel is going to die. So in chapter 25, Samuel will die. So now the last judge is gone. And now it's very soon it's going to be time for the new king to come on the scene. So in the meantime, though, David, who's been away from Michael, his wife, daughter of Saul, He's going to make a new wife now because he's going to be received very inhospitably by a man named Nabal. And Nabal is going to be smitten and he's going to be struck down by the Lord and die. And so now David, so now his wife, the wife of Nabal, Abigail, is horrified by her husband's terrible behavior and apologizes, tries to do everything she can to be good to David and his servants. And after that, David will decide to propose marriage to her. So he will. So he marries Abigail. And then he takes another wife after that, too. Yes, remember, we're far away from the monogamy of the Garden of Eden. Right? So he takes another wife, too, Ahinoam of Jezreel. And now both became his wives because, we're told at the end of chapter 25, Saul had given Michael, his daughter, David's wife, to Palti, the son of Laish, who was of Galen. But Michael, he's going to get Michael back later. Right? So now, again, we have another episode where, again, he spares Saul's life. The same sort of ploy he does, once again, to say, why won't you believe me? And now in chapter 26, finally now Saul repents. And he says, I have done wrong. Return, my son David, for I will no more do you harm because my life was precious in your eyes this day. Behold, I have played the fool and have erred exceedingly. And David made answer, Here is the spear, O king. Let one of the young men come over and fetch it. The Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and faithfulness, for the Lord gave you into my hand today, and I would not put forth my hand against the Lord's anointed. Behold, as your life was precious this day in my sight, So may my life be precious in the sight of the Lord, and may he deliver me out of all tribulation. And Saul said to David, Blessed be you, my son David. You will do many things and will succeed in them. And in fact, he will admit now, Saul will admit that that the kingship is going to go to David. He knows this now. He knows this now. Nevertheless, Saul's going to do one last bad thing. Really bad thing now. And this will be the end. And this will be to his eternal ignominy ignominy that he does this in chapter 28 he wants to find out what really what's going to happen though when am i going to are things really going to go bad i've already been told i'm going to lose everything i want to know what's going on so he does the worst possible thing he could do he goes and finds a witch to consult he goes and consults the witch of endor so he makes his way pack a whole army of ewoks and then gets to no so endor so no it's not the same endor it's this planet but so Yeah, it's still planet Earth that this Endor exists, but it's, so it's southwest of Mount Tabor. It's north of the land of Judah, far north, in the land of Galilee, okay, near Galilee. And he goes and consults this witch. And now remember, one thing about Saul is Saul's been a very good and pious king as far as religion is concerned. He has not allowed any form of idolatry in Israel. Absolutely none. No idolatry whatsoever. He never does anything like that, unlike all the other kings who are going to come. So he's very, very strict about that. 
And so he's, he's driven all the witches out of the land of Israel. And so how does he find a witch? And then she's shocked. She's like, who are you? What are you going to do? You're here to kill me. He said, no. And then he swears, no, I swear I won't kill you. I, I, won't, I, just, I need your help. I need you to use your witchcraft to tell me. Right. And she says, what do you want me to do? He says, I want you to conjure up Samuel for me. <gasps> and so she does it. So she does it. And then she says, when the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. And the woman said to Saul, now understanding, she said, why have you deceived me? You are Saul. And the king said to her, have no fear. What do you see? And the woman said to Saul, I see a God coming up out of the earth. And he said to her, what is his appearance? She said, an old man is coming up. He is wrapped in a robe. And Saul knew that it was Samuel. And he bowed with his face to the ground and did obeisance. And the Lord and Samuel said to Saul, why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? Saul answered, I am in great distress for the Philistines are warring against me. And God has turned away from me and answers me no more, either by prophets or by dreams. Therefore, I have summoned you to tell me what I shall do. Samuel said, Why then do you ask me, since the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy? The Lord has done to you as he spoke by me. For the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor David. Because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek. Therefore, the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines. And tomorrow you and your son shall be with me. The Lord will give the army of Israel also into the hand of the Philistines. So not quite the answer he was hoping for. So because he did this, because he consulted witchcraft, the Lord simply allowed to happen what he wanted. The Lord permitted that, you know, here's Samuel in the land of the dead. He's not in heaven yet. It's not the time of Christ. So he's in the land of the dead, in the limbo of the fathers. And so he allows Samuel to come up. He said, fine, tell him. Tell him what he wants to know. So he said, here you are. Yep, you're going to... You're, you're going to be killed tomorrow with your sons. Ooh. Ooh. So, and that's exactly what's going to happen now as we come to the conclusion of the book. So chapter 31 will conclude with the final battle where Saul will do very valiantly. He'll fight very valiantly for Israel. His last battle is a great one. But he's slain by arrows along with all his sons. And what does he do? How does he come to an end? The Philistines fought against Israel, and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons, and the Philistines slew Jonathan and Aminadab and Machashua, sons of Saul. The battle pressed hard upon Saul, and the archers found him, and he was badly wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and make sport of me. But his armor-bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Therefore Saul took his own sword and fell upon him. And when his armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell upon his sword and died with him. Thus Saul died and all his three sons and his armor-bearer and all his men on the same day together. And when the men of Israel who were on the other side of the valley and those beyond the Jordan saw that the men of Israel had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they forsook their cities and fled and the Philistines came and dwelt in them. And on the next day, when the Philistines came to strip the slain, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on, fallen on Mount Geboa. And they cut off his head and stripped his armor and sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to their idols and to the people. They put his armor in the temple of Ashtaroth, and they fastened his body to the wall of Bethshan. But when the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose and went all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bethshan, and they came to Jabesh and burnt them there. And they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree in Jabesh, 
and fasted seven days. So even though that's only Samuel 1, and it's, of course, supposed to be part of one larger book, we see it comes to a very perfect conclusion. It was a great cliffhanger. And then Samuel part 2 is going to start up with this note of excitement because we're in the midst of this battle. So it's a perfect place to make a break in the book. But especially because I want to end there, it's perfect for me to end with this final commentary on Saul, on the king of Saul. We're going to talk so much about David next time. I want to say one last word about Saul. He's certainly a very tragic figure, Saul. He had so many good things, but then fell into such horrible evil. And he was an anointed one, wasn't he? He was truly anointed as king. So he was a Christ. He was a Christ figure. He was a tragic and failed Christ figure. We see that even right at the end. Whereas what kind of a death does he have? Does he have a death that brings redemption to people? No, it's a tragic death. It's a Judas-type death. It's a suicide. How often do we hear about suicide in the Bible? Well, how much? Saul and Judas. Right? So <clears throat> a very tragic death. And we feel bad for Saul because we see that, well, on the one hand, his acts of disobedience, well, they're not nearly as bad as what some of the other kings are going to do later on. So we have a, there's a part of us who wants to feel bad for Saul. And in fact, we see that the Bible itself doesn't truly condemn him so much. Even the chronicler who talks about the evil deeds of, of Saul, and we'll talk about his death just as we heard about here, and it remind us of the evil things that Saul did, and so his end was tragic. One thing in the chronicles that we hear is he does give the full genealogy of Saul, not only from before him, but also way past him in his line. Will they be kings? Will the descendants of Saul ever be kings of Israel? No, they won't. But it's strange that he does that. We wonder why. As Christians, though, we should know why. Why would he do that for the line of Saul? We allow, in Chronicles, we get to hear that, no, his descendants continue on. Saul is not totally wiped out from the earth. He will continue on. His house is not accursed. It does continue on because, in fact, how will it continue on? Will ever one of his descendants actually become king of Israel? No. But will there be an illustrious descendant? You bet there will be. Will there one day be another Saul from the tribe of Benjamin? Yes, there will, right? In fact, the fathers will look at that when they say, what does he say about Saul? What does he say about Benjamin? That prophecy of the tribe of Benjamin in Genesis 49, Jacob will say to his son Benjamin, he say, he is what? He is a ravenous wolf. He's a ravenous wolf. And that the fathers will understand, who is this ravenous wolf? That's the Saul of to come, the Saul of the tribe of Benjamin, Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles. He's the ravenous wolf who will go out and seek souls for Christ, who will preach the gospel to all the nations. So Saul, in the end, his house will be redeemed because another Saul is to come, another Saul of the tribe of Benjamin, the apostle to the Gentiles, St. Paul. We'll see you next time.